sharing huge space. Look how fast he's going. Polar opposite of the conditions he won in Lords. Rain soaked Lords. They're getting the last step down. The crowd is roaring. He is going to do it. He's going to smash the time of Lawrence Downhill racer and our expert here today, Andrew Needling. Hello and how's it? Welcome to the show. Thanks for downloading this episode. This is Moving the Needle Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Nietling. If this is the first time tuning in, welcome. Pretty cool to have you. Well, they say you shouldn't timestamp these things. Well, I'm not listening to that. It is 2021, folks. It is a new year. We all experienced such a crazy turn of events in 2020. I'm motivated for the new year. I hope you guys are as well. And a great thing that came out of 2020 for myself, well, I started this podcast. And thanks to you guys for all the reviews, the ratings, downloading this episode. The response has been awesome. It makes me want to do more of these things. So thanks so much. And uh, like I said, I'm motivated for 2021. Now, this week, I've got none other than Sven Martin. Sven is a great friend of mine. Him and his wife, Uncle Martin, actually took me under their wing when I first traveled overseas to America. I actually stayed at their house down in Laguna Beach. They were so helpful. I was uh, 18 years old, I think, at the time, so I didn't know a lot about the world or even riding at that stage. So I really just appreciate what they did for me. But also, Sven Martin, he's a unique character. He is so passionate about the sport He's uh, always wanting to help people, sometimes giving advice even when they don't want to hear it, but it's because he just wants to kind of see people do well, help people. And I jumped straight into the interview, but we've got a big history. Like I said, they housed me when I went over them. I rode on on some of the same teams as them. And uh, yeah, like I say, we go way back. We've traveled for hours and hours on end in a car, You know, we go at it. We've had some good arguments, but I really like having Sven on the podcast. But I want to showcase what he's achieved. He is from South Africa. He is quite humble about it, but he was a pro skater in my mind. Reached the top of the South African ranks and went overseas to make it. And uh, he's since become one of the top uh, influencers and photographers in the mountain bike world. So all those awesome pictures you see from the World Cups, the EWS a lot of them are from Sven Martin. So guys, with uh, you know, without further ado, let's hear from Sven. Welcome, Mr. Sven Martin. How are we doing? Um, I've never heard you call me Mr. Sven Martin, um, but we are doing good down here in New Zealand. Well, I'm taking this, you know, I'm taking this seriously. So maybe that'll be the first and last time. Um, when anyone calls me Mister, it makes me feel old, and then I realise that I guess I am old in this uh, sport of downhill. Uh, well, I'm not going to voice your age on the podcast, but you have been doing this uh, this a long time, and you've become quite a name on the, on the circuit, and I think you play quite a few roles. But before we get into the cycling industry, I'm not sure everyone knows that you were a pro skateboarder in your youth. Um, pro skateboarder? Border is is um I guess depending on what what's the definition of a pro skateboarder. I never ever made money from skateboarding. I mean I made money selling boards and being involved with skateboarding, but um I did have a pro model skateboard. Um but being a pro coming from South Africa, you know, being like the top skateboarder in South Africa puts you like at the bottom of the pro pile more like a good am in america back in the um the 90s when 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 i basically moved to america for skateboarding but i mean uh, what about all those stories when you had about 14 swatch watches all over your body i mean that i think that constitutes being a pro well these days people think if you get free stuff you're a pro well, yeah, I guess in, in South Africa, I was very much a pro. We, we got um, good money and, and I had some good sponsors that paid me to skateboard and had a crazy um, contest incentive and photo incentive. And the biggest early sponsor I had was was Swatch Watches that you mentioned. And the nice thing with them was a Swiss company and they treated me and the skateboarders like any international athlete of theirs. So although I was just a skateboarder in South Africa, sponsored by Swatch, I was treated like they they had deep sea divers and and 
uh, alpinist and all, all that. So, yeah, I bought, like, I was 17 and bought my first car cash before I even had a driver's license just from, just from like, a summer of skateboarding and contest and photo and uh, contest incentive and prize money. And then, uh, so you follow this passion to America as a youngster. I mean, talk more about that. You've said uh, you didn't feel like a pro, more like an am, compared to obviously people with more experience in the industry was so big back then, especially in America. Well, I I basically finished high school, so you're you're 18 years old, and at that point in South Africa, you either had to go to tertiary education, college, uh, university. Or you had to go to the the army, which was mandatory uh, military service. Um, I did the third option, which was kind of gray area, maybe illegal at the time. And I went to the USA and went to California and I lived there and and went skateboarding. So I didn't have the paperwork to prove that I wasn't going to university. So while I was in the US, the military police went around to my parents' house and said, where's your son? He hasn't shown up. And they were like, oh, well, he's in America and we don't know where he is. So, um, but then while I was in the US, that was um, basically the end of apartheid. And as soon as that collapsed, so did the mandatory conscription. And I came back and I'd had a year in the US and my friends had a year in the army and then I went to university. So it was good timing for me. Now, the sport of skateboarding, I mean, a lot of people, like in downhill, you watch the final runs and it looks unbelievable what these guys are pulling off. But it's very physically demanding, but I think more mentally, because to land some of these tricks, you, you sometimes do hundreds of attempts. Talk to me about that. I mean, f- your formative years, which I think for for any sport, <clears throat> like especially mountain biking as well, um, whether you're learning a sport or you're learning languages, the early years are, are when you can progress and learn things quicker. So skateboarding, that was my sport, you know, from pretty much 11, 12, when we stopped BMXing and started skateboarding from like those years right through to like 28, 29. Um, so like being a young teenager, if you have a one track, you know, I did all the school sports and, and rugby and water polo and cricket and, and stuff, but if you have a one track mind and all of your free time or, or even just you make you make time or, or it consumes everything else is one sport um, like skateboarding, then that's the way you progress. And, and skateboarding, possibly one of the hardest sports in the in the world because, you know, the tech the technicality of it and the difficulty of the tricks and and then the consequences doing it in, you know, on concrete or on vert ramps or big ramps. So so like it doesn't feel like it's hard when you're completely consumed about it but if you had to like try pick up skateboarding and you're like already in your 20s and you're trying to learn how to ollie or do a kickflip it's like almost impossible pretty much so but it's yeah i mean it definitely you got to master something you can't just learn a trick and move on and and then i mean you do kind of build on to tricks like that and and improve all your how many tricks you can do and your consistency when you do in contests but like you got to keep doing it like even now if i don't skateboard for a couple of weeks or in my case a couple of months you pretty much lose it all it's nothing like riding a bike where you can not ride for a year if you have a year or from injury and pretty much within three four rides or a couple of you know week or two of riding you can be back where you left off it's like pretty much impossible in skateboarding you you can you can't get back where you left off like snowboarding to some extent you can surfing if you surf for like a month straight again you can but like skateboarding it's, it's over once you like let it slip it's it's done yeah it seems like a physically and demanding sport i mean that go get attitude and trying it over and over and do you think that's set you up for the rest of your life in a sense just uh kind of those habits you learned skateboarding I think I think it's it's um you've got to have some kind of toughness and stubbornness and then but I think the the best thing about skateboarding there's no real boundaries and there's no um so it, it more opens up creativity. So whether it be tricks you're doing, spots you're skateboarding, disciplines of skateboarding, you know, you can ram mini ram street bowl, um it, it's it's 
it's just a super creative and, and just wide sport. So it allows you to do a lot. And, and you're also in, in a sense, like, um, mountain biking, you're, you're practicing your sport on like chain. Like, it's not just like a basic mini ramp. That's or vert ramp. That's, you know, the same where you can kind of do it like Olympic style. But when you're street skateboarding, um, it, it's, it's how you interpret the terrain, which is really like pretty much exactly like mountain biking to some extent. So, um, I guess that's, you know, when I got into mountain biking, why I, I enjoyed it so much. It, it was like a, a different low impact version of skateboarding in terms of the creativity and, and interpreting terrain how you want to. And do you think that's potentially, you know, why you took to it so quickly? You started very late in mountain biking, but you, you excelled within reason for starting so late up to a semi-pro and then a pro level. You've, you've raced World Cups. And I think people don't know how late you started and how impressive that is. Yeah, like you were saying, how oh I was saying how how old I am, you know, you know, relative to to you and and all the kind of guys that are at the top of the field now, or even the older guys like like Minar, Um I am what I think one year or a couple of months older than Petey, so he's like eight months younger than me. But thinking the difference is, I only started mountain biking when I was like twenty eight. Um, did my very first race kind of a couple of months after I started mountain biking. That was 2001 Sea Otter. Um, so that's like April 2001. And then by 2003, two years later, I raced and qualified at my first World Cup in Caprun. So it didn't f feel like I just, I guess that's quick. Like, because I, I don't think anybody, I can't see anybody now. Like, you know, beginning to ride mountain bikes and then racing World Cups. Actually, I, I lied because that, that's exactly what happened with Aaron Gwynn. I mean, he he um, that's his his path was the same, except he like began winning World Cups in, in as little as few years. So, but there's it's yeah, it felt easy to me because I was wearing like padding, and and those days we just did downhilling. We didn't have trail bikes, so we wearing Dainese and downhill bikes, and I'd come from jumping down twelve stairs and handrails and vert ramps and bowls, so. When you ate shit on a mountain bike, it didn't matter. You just get back up and, and do it again. So I wasn't scared, which meant I could go fast, but I couldn't corner good because I didn't really have the techniques or the fundamentals or the basic. I actually didn't really know how to race at all because um, going against the clock was something I, I wasn't used to, um, so the mental side of it. So basically I used to crash flat or melt down, and that was the story of my racing career. Well, I mean, uh, I think it's still impressive starting at 28. You've you've subtly compared yourself to the likes of Aaron Gwynn there. No, no, I. How <laughs> many? Yeah, I said, I, yeah, I guess I said he's the only other guy that that could um, race World Cups. He did. He did it within a year, though. That's the difference. He did it within a year. And he I, also I was basically a semi-pro professional motocrosser. Um, those are a little bit more similar. Uh, being on two wheels, you were from a skateboard background. But I like what you said. It was almost. Yeah which is funny, almost safe to you to go uh, put some Dainisi on and try go 60, 70K an hour on a mountain bike seemed pretty safe to you compared to jumping on 12 stairs to concrete. So that that, yeah, that, that clearly helped you there. Well, I didn't know any better, and I got into skate, uh, mountain biking because it was low impact and I had bad knees, and the doctor said, for, he said, like, rehab your knee by doing low impact. So yet all my injuries in 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 20 years of skateboarding I probably only like broke fingers and rolled ankles and swollen knees but nothing else and then in mountain biking I've I've broken a lot of lot of things so that low impact safe thing went out the window pretty pretty quick as the bikes got better and you went even faster yeah I think this um that stubborn attitude I think that you built and the resilience coming from South Africa going to America coming back that seemed to really help you through some of those injuries and and get you back out riding again you've had s some really bad ones you started doing double duty you know where did the passion for photography come we've spoken about the skateboarding your attitude towards that how it helped you and then you spoke creativity is that where the photography side came in well, in in South Africa at that time, in the late 80s, early 90s, um, and through the 90s, you kind of had to do things yourself. Um, we were somewhat isolated. There weren't, like, you couldn't watch all the videos, and you could. it was very difficult to get the skateboarding magazines. And then with any 
seen that, that you know, South, South Africa was skateboarding was blowing up like everywhere else in the world. So the surf magazine wanted to start a skate magazine. Then my brother um, basically started the first skateboarding ma- magazine in South Africa and he shot the photos for it. And prior to all of this, my my father was always been a photographer. So from growing up as a kid, from going to the game reserves for your school holidays, we'd go camp in the bush in the caravan or, or a camper van, and we'd be basically out 10 hours a day just with cameras. Now as a little like 8, 9, 10, 11-year-old kid, you know, usually like these days they would be on PlayStation and their phones. But those days we would just have to sit dead quiet and still in the car and my dad to, to allow him to do what he wanted to do, um, taking photos, he basically gave us cameras so we'd shut the fuck up and take photos. And and then we used his lenses. So I don't remember, like, him teaching, you know, he obviously told us about composition and exposure and light, but not really from a scientific standpoint, just from a practical standpoint. And then, so but by the time it came to when we were doing, doing things for ourselves, you know, we put together skateboard tours and we needed to document it. And then one of us had to shoot photos and I had a camera and I knew how to use it. So then, you know, along with the, the, the you know, doing the tours, we we're just self-document for the local magazines. And so I could always shoot photos and we filmed ourselves. And so I don't, you know, I never really set out to learn it. It was a something I needed to do on the side to help push the sport that we were doing. And, and then in, when I got into mountain biking, I, I didn't, Take, you know, I was shooting skateboarding quite heavily then um, because the the crews I was riding with were all the top skaters in the world. And then as soon as the tricks, as soon as we got to a spot and you weren't going to do the craziest next trick, like you'd have to wait around until the guy you're with, you know, did whatever he came there to do. And I would just shoot photos on the side, you know, kind of more as a second shooter. And then slowly but surely, I would go out with guys and we'd, we'd shoot ads and we'd shoot articles and, and I'd shoot some contests and I did a bunch of stuff for a whole lot of companies and, and for Thrasher magazine. Um, but when I got into mountain biking, I didn't want to, like that was my um, break from, from you know, it was my hobby. It wasn't my job for the from the photography side of things. So I basically, I never shot mountain biking for those first, I don't know, four, five, three, four, five years. You know, I have a couple of photos from like 03 and 04, but I was kind of just mountain biking then. And then, and then slowly but surely, I, um, you know, I, I, I kept finding, I kept finding myself uh, qualifying like around, you know, 50 to 60th position, which would mean I'd go down and then there would still be 50 riders to come. And, you know, when you have three minute gaps and stuff, that's quite a lot of time. And then I was like, oh, hang on, I could just run up the track and shoot photos. And and so that sort of started, um, that's how I developed my sort of photography in, in the mountain biking sort of things. And then, yeah, and then it just kind of snowballed from there, I guess. Well, I mean, I can still remember those days. So for the listener at home, picture um, a guy in full, well, we call it motocross gear, I guess, Dainisi. Sven wouldn't even take any of that off and he'd just grab his camera bag and, and, and run up a hill and often that'd be in 35 degree heat, sweating profusely, hadn't really eaten or, or had anything to drink and then he'd uh, plonk himself down and you got some really good pictures pictures back in the day but you spoke about how you got introduced to it uh, and it sounds all self-taught, you know, you didn't do any formal what? formal education on the photography side. No, it was um, like self-taught by my, by my father, I guess, and 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 because he was like a professional photographer, he was shooting slide film, but he would never give us slide film. He would give us print film because it was cheaper, and we could you know screw up and everything. And then eventually, like when he saw that we got, we were getting better and 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 coming out with good photos, then he gave us slide film. And at that point, um, Every shot you take needs to be completely correct, you know, um, everything from your exposures to your timing to your composition because it's costing every click, like costing proper money and time and processing. So it it was, um, yeah, like, like I said, I, there was no formal education, but in a way it was the best kind of education, having it in a real-life setting. And, and shooting wildlife, if you're shooting a bird and it's flying or you're shooting a lion chasing an impala or a zebra, you know, you're tracking the animal 
and um, pulling focus. So it's it's essentially the same as like tracking mountain biking, really. Um, pretty pretty similar anyway. So Sven, I mean, it's not just this suddenly you pop up as a photographer. There's years and years of practice and and uh, accountable practice there, not not wasting your dad's dad's money. So that's interesting. But on top of being a photographer in this day and age, you've skill stacked your skateboarding, your riding, your photography, and now you've had to um, become a journalist as well. I think people don't realize how much the photographers on the world circuit are doing uh, behind the scenes. Speak a little bit into the journalism side. Yeah, I guess, I mean, when it came to having to make money from scape, uh, from uh, Manamike photography, um, you were kind of then, you, you had to basically shoot the best people in the world for someone to want the photo. Um, and, you know, companies could only buy a couple of photos a year and use that as their ad in their catalog. But the magazines would buy photos every month. Um, and there would be a couple of magazines in, in the US and in the UK, like Decline, Bike, um, Flow, uh, Mountain Biking, and, and obviously Dirt Magazine, um, and MBUK. So I covered events, and, and I had that. That's you had the world's best riders in front of you, and they would all come to the Norbers, and then I'd go to a whole bunch of, like, not all the World Cups in the early days, but as many as I could get to, um, racing and then shooting. So basically, when you're covering events, the other way, they want someone to do the words, and because this is mountain biking, and not um, a, you know you don't you're not having a proper writer write the article, and a photographer shoot the photos because most of the the, the magazines don't have enough money to pay two people. A couple of them do, um, and you got paid for words as well. But often to sell the photos, you have to provide the words, and then also shooting racing, you're kind of documenting more than you know. Obviously, you want to take good photos and creative photos and exciting photos, but you're documenting what's happening and you're trying to capture the story, the mood, the vibe. So you're doing it more from a documentary standpoint, which ties into the journalism side of things. You, you're being very objective and not subjective. And normally in creative photography, it's a subjective art, but race documenting is an objective way. Like you don't have to shoot shitty photos to tell the story. Ideally, you want to shoot good photos to tell the story. but that goes along with being a journalist. You, you can't like, you know, if you've got Marshall in the background or wires over the shot, you for race reported, you can't Photoshop them out. And also you're looking for the stories and you want to tell the stories with your photos, but you also, you know, like you said, being a journalist and writing reports. And, and these days our report writing is less because we're doing stuff online. And, but your caption writing, you know, you try to capture the story in the photo and you've got captions. So they're, adding up all the captions of 30 photos and that's pretty much your 2000 word story or 3000 word story. So, so yeah, we definitely journalists and photographers, um, and they can, for the, definitely the event coverage, you, you can, they work, you know, um, together very well. And then ideally, you know, you want to still set yourself apart and do something different do something creative. So, so it's definitely a challenge of, of doing it like a journalist, but then also doing it as a creative. And then you've taken upon yourself, I know, from racing and, and you've got a respect from the riders because you can ride in your own right. And I think that's given you access and you've become friends with some of these riders. And some of them now, for the listener at home, Sven Martin is on the, the, the course from sunrise to sunset. So he's seeing a lot of sections of the track. He's seeing a lot of riders. And a lot of them that don't have team managers that are up there or don't have a person at area will, will lean on Sven to ask what riders are doing in certain sections how fast they're looking and uh, Sven's been good at giving some friendly advice but sometimes telling a rider pretty direct you know where to go on track is there a key time that comes to mind that a rider has used your advice and maybe won the race or did well it, it's um well it, it's quite a, a big broad <laughs> subject because because I don't give away people's lines to other riders like um because basically you've you've earned as a as a journalist, as a friend, as someone that needs access to these writers, you know, in the pits to get the story and and uh, you know you've earned their trust for once uh, for one. And in doing so, if somebody does have a line that's sort of one that he's saving or he doesn't want people to know about, I'm going to respect that whether or not like 
you're my best friend, uh, the, another eyes my best friend. I'm not going to say this is Sam Hill's line. Well, for starters, you're like you're not going to do Sam Hill's line. Only Sam is going to do Sam Hill's line. So, so it's a, it's a, but then when there's other lines where there's two obvious lines and then the guys are trying to figure out what's faster or if it's early in practice and, and a line's developing, you know, I'll point it out to anybody that wants it. It doesn't matter if it's like G or Greg or you know wh- whoever who are basically competitors with each other. So. You know, is a fine line you want to tread because you 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 don't want to give away people's lines. Um, but it's also it's equal opportunity. If somebody wants it, I'll, I'll tell them what I think is the best line. But then on the flip side, the best line for one person in a section is not the best line for another. So it very much depends on on riders' style and, and not ability because these guys all have ability, but their their way of riding. Because like I'll give you an example. Um, there's a line in. In Val de Sol, the last couple of years, um, just when you kind of end, you finish this last steep technical woods. So you've done that boom, boom, huck jam that they tamed and made super easy. You go there far, and then you get that real steep section. And then just before you jump that, it's not a road gap, but it's a little road crossing where Gwyn crashed when he was in the wet and he blew up and crashed when he was ahead. Uh, you know which one I'm talking I know about? Exactly in that one, yeah. Okay. So just above that, it's I don't think it was there when you were racing. But there's like a little rock garden with a like a left right, and it's kind of a longish rock garden before that like drop into the road, and then you jump off, you know, you gap out. So there's always there's a fast line on the left that people jump into the fast line, and there's a kind of a slower roll roll line on the right, and it's like ninety actually two hundred and fifty of the two hundred and six two two hundred and fifty of the two hundred and fifty one riders like. The fast line's on the left, but it's hard to do because it's it has risk because you've got to jump into it. And otherwise, the rest of you, you know, you guys have got to take the right line. But then you have someone like Almery where he's able to do, like, the fast line has a, a maximum speed that you can, because you're doing it maximum and you're coming out maximum. And the slow line is slower, but somehow you get a rider like Almery, which flips everything on its side, and he's able to do the slow line so fast that it becomes faster than the fast line, but only he's able to do that. So, um, so going back to your question on, on lines, um, I, I can, I can tell you off the top of my head is like kind of two funny stories. Um, one, when I just actually wrote about it in, in an Instagram caption like two days ago. So you can look at my Instagram from Murray Ball. Um, there's a big, Bog, this is 2010 Maribor, the super, super wet one. The last um, turn before the finish line, like as he came out of the woods, there was like a, you bottomed out in a flat, muddy bog. Do you remember that? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So the fast line is you like, you stay kind of right. So you're not using the full width berm and then you just straight shoot onto the finish line. But basically if you got two inches, but that, that was the fast line that everyone had been running all week. But now, Sunday morning, it was super wet and super boggy, and that became like a you know six inch deep rut, which would just hold your wheel. Um, it would you know almost any other bars, but it would definitely it will it will hold you. Um, so I basically had um, Brownie radio up to G, and I said um, this is before Manaz dropped in as well. Um, I said, hey, that G's line that he's doing the rut at the bottom. He's just got to like trust me. He's just got to go two inches to the left, and he'll be fine, and he won't get held up on the rut. Um, and uh, he didn't do it. Um, and Greg beat him by zero point two. So, which is the second year in a row, G got second. Um, well, actually, the previous year he was he was he won qualifying and then crashed, um, and Fabian won. And then now the following year he had. Um, I think he had maybe qualified first as either way, he didn't listen to me. He hit the rut, didn't take my line, and basically lost the race to Manar by 0.2 seconds. But um the problem with G um was not the problem. The reason he also didn't listen to me, because I'd have also told him in Wyndham, um actually this is after, so but anyway. Um there's a line in Wyndham in the fast words. I think you were on the podium that race. Um, you come out this, you know, it's like a shaley woods, right? In, it's a shaley steep section right in the middle of the woods and it went into like this left burn, but you could stay far right. Basically I said to G, you just got to stay far right and just 
boom through the rock garden and like that there's like nothing to it you just got to trust me on it so he did that in qualifying blind and i'm like well for starters i told you about that before you started practice why did you wait till qualifying to try it but he basically took my advice and, and crashed as well so so it, it's so it's um, a double-edged sword it seems that you're dancing it's here, a double-edged sword. i like the i like the psychology you spoke about because each rider is different and the rider needs to know himself as well because if you're going to ask for input you got to be you got to be aware that it, you might not get back what you want to hear so sometimes i remember being on side of track i might not even ask because i know maybe my line is technically not the fastest but if i can ride it confidently that's better than trying to ride something i'm doubtful of and i think that's each rider is different and i think you clearly learning which rider to tell what line can work because like you say, there's a certain Sam Hill line back in the day. There's a certain now potential Amory can ride a line that's visually slower or time slow on average, but the way he rides it, it's faster, and and that can mislead some riders. Yeah, and I mean, and I mean, usually that line advice is is he giving to somebody um, like early in practice, so they have time to fine tune it. But sometimes they want to know where other people are going in in. Um, after qualifying and they don't get like they like they off the they off the, they back but they don't know where the seconds are on the track um in enduro the enduro world series where riders only get one line and they see us shooting a section they like 90 percent of the time they're like what looks fastest and then we tell them and then they like just they don't even bother thinking they just do it um a lot of the riders because you're only getting one go so enduro is you know hell of a different to downhill where you to some extent you have the time to figure out what is your fastest line you know like people like loic and a couple of others they have their timing systems so they've taken it to the next level you know they've got a team of guys so there's no doubt in loic's line that he is on his fastest line you know and he also knows the other fast riders time on his line you know to the extent that some of the riders basically were like i don't want you like timing my my run when i come through that section um and there's going to be a lot more people they've seen how successful you know they've they've done it for a couple of years not just this year um with you know he's got a team of guys dedicated to that and i know um laurie greenland he he's he was talking about it and and instead of like getting a pay rise or asking for more money he's like I don't want all more money, but I want you guys to hire some people and we need some line coaches and, and that's going to benefit the whole team, not just me. So it, it's good that, you know, riders only have, you know, so many, like back in the day, you know, people couldn't be like Pascal and do 18 runs or 20 runs a World Cup weekend. Riders' bodies and the speeds and, you know, the risk, you can only do that that run at pace, you know, and you pretty much got to be at pace after like two or three runs. So you've got to have your shit together and every every run counts these days in World Cup. So, you know, it's it's headed that way, which is cool because the sport's getting professional. But it's also probably why people like Josh Bryson and stuff just lost interest, you know? Yeah, it is evolving. Every run counts. And I think if you can do it correctly, those things help. Some riders, too much input doesn't help. But if it decreases the doubt of what line you're on, if it's that line's as fast as the one you thought you should take, you know, at least you can stick to that. I remember in... Maritzburg, there was the big hip jump at the bottom. Um, yeah. And there was also, you could jump into the wall. Now, after four or five minutes of pedaling your ass off, that hip jump was a bit sketchy because if you, you know, you lost, you didn't have enough power, you'd case it. If you did a pedal stroke too late, you'd probably go over the bars. And we started timing it because I was now worried about my whole run. I was just thinking about the stupid hip jump. But there's four minutes yeah. of track that I needed to, to make time on. And then we went and timed it. And we got an average, and yes, the hip jump done perfectly was a tiny bit faster, but not much. And that helped us make a decision. So sometimes it's just, you know, getting rid of the doubt. And I think you're able to help the riders within reason and unbiasedly at the top. You're at the you're at the side of the track. If someone asks you, is someone going there? That's a fair question to answer. You haven't favored anyone, you know. Yeah, and and it's actually it's actually weird that they not they never really ask these guys are so good that they don't doubt their own skills you never have any of the top guys saying where is Loic going where is troy going where's danny going they just kind of ask you what you think about certain lines they don't which is i find very interesting because for me i just want to know where anybody that i think is faster than me i want to know where they're going but these guys they don't and that's that's what makes them so good they they want to know 
what that line looks like, does it work, but they don't really give a shit where anyone else is going, you know? Um, well, you really shouldn't. Is, you have to focus on yourself, and I think that's when you can spot which rider is going to do well that week. And I think when Brendan was going through some struggles and I was on the side of the track, the the, the questions he was asking me surprised me, and that, that was because he was coming back from injury or whatever the time was. And I could sense he wasn't quite confident yet because he would never ask me those type of things when he was riding confidently or well. And and you've just noticed that a top rider, when he's riding well, like an Aaron Gwynn keeps to himself, you know he just decides his own lines because he's, he's that confident. And when people start doubting, they ask him more questions, more input, and that's probably when you can spot if a rider's maybe not riding at his top level. Yeah, and it's also when they practice with in trains with friends. You can see when, when somebody's feeling good, you know, they're in a different position in that train or they suddenly not in that train anymore and they just like keeping things to themselves so yeah it, it's a constantly like involving organism dynamic that's happening every world cup weekend and what about the is there a most impressive thing you've witnessed trackside I've, I've got questions from listeners and i actually noted that is there something that stands out i'm sure there may well, that one that one example of of armory where i i could not believe how fast he could ride the slow section and this is just this is two years ago before he had his crazy good year of 18. Um, and that was just like, yeah, that, that, ex that explains it. He is on another level. Um, but I think the most impressive thing is, is you don't from the videos and, and, and the photos until you're standing trackside that close and, you know, you, you're riding, you know, some of the stuff yourself, you don't, you take for granted that you don't realize how fast they are going and how, little room for error and how they are literally hitting lines by by millimeters maybe not like brooke mcdonald because he's just going fast anywhere on the track and he's not hitting lines by millimeters but um the actual speed they're going is 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 phenomenal in the sections they're going and and but let's see like most impressive like there's man that's fine. You've answered. I mean, Peron, even before yeah. he was a name, is is he did something in a section that you just thought wasn't possible. I think that's one of the biggest mistakes you can do is is stopping in the wrong section as a rider. You you'll be a podium rider and you'll stop and you'll go, that guy's going so fast, you know, and you kind of get, you know, like a head fuck because, but you're going the exact same speed. It's just you can't actually believe that you're riding a bicycle over that terrain at that speed so the speed of world cup racing i was even watching alex alex rankin posted a bit about maribor back in the day yeah these are still 26 inch bikes so cool the footage i think everyone go check that post out i'll try link to it if i remember yeah that was but, 2000 um, that's that was 2000 2007 maribor, 2007 that i mean the pace was so fast and it's just got faster and faster um your your work ethic you are definitely a man that can burn the candle at all ends um just share with the listener a quick look like uh what your day looks like and not much of an evening because um you guys are really putting a lot of work hours in to get all the fans and people at home the the race footage so we um you know it's always like a four or a, a five-day week um you start the monday which is basically you've just finished an event on the sunday and then you travel sometime Monday to the new event, Tuesday you're arriving. Um, basically Wednesday you're doing a track walk and pit stuff. And then depending if, the, if it's a World Cup double or – because I shoot the cross country and, and the downhill. Um, you, you, but basically uh, you've, got, you've got practice. You've got track walk, which is kind of like an easy day. You finish around 11, 12, midnight. Um, and you shooting a lot of tech and a lot of bikes. So basically to pay for all – all the stuff you see on Vital and all the stuff you see on Pink Bike, you know, sadly, like a picture of a, a new cassette or a, a roto with just something different will get more likes than your photo of uh, Omri or Loic winning a World Cup. Um, so the tech drives the editorial. Um, so all our editors want us to deliver tech so they can justify paying us to deliver the editorial. But the editorial we're actually just doing because we love documenting the passion of racing. So that's kind of the editorial is now a real small part of the work outflow, although it takes a lot of time. And, and, and at three in the morning when you're building a vital slideshow and it takes an hour and a half, 
and then you're getting up at seven in the morning and you've just got to sleep at four thirty. you know it's the last thing you feel like doing but it's why it's like our stoke and passion and um, enthusiasm for racing is why we we like to do the editorial side because it'd be very easy just to do the commercial and the client side. Um, and I shoot everyone. I shoot all the women's and the B practice, uh, sorry, all the, the B practice. So that's eight thirty morning and then finish shooting at five o'clock when the last time runs are done in the leads. Um, so yeah, it is a full day and then you basically just, you edit from, you download and edit, sort well, you edit and tag and sort, um, and then you process. So you, I don't know. You you finish. You basically start getting up at seven, and you and you're getting to sleep around three. And then on a, on a race day, you get to sleep around four or five. Um, and then you get up and shoot the cross country on the Sunday. Um, and then you travel on Monday to the next place. So yeah, like I said, I, I like to shoot everyone, not just my clients. And that's because we're doing the editorial. And I could think of nothing worse of like just shooting the Santa Cruz guys or the Athertons or the GT guys like and, and the Giant guys, I could think of nothing worse than like seeing Loic and Gwen and just because they're not my clients per se, not shooting them. Like why would you do that? Like that's – you should – you know, anybody that looks good and is hitting a section good, you know, I'm, I'm shooting them um, even if they're not even getting in the top ten. So I, I really shouldn't be because I would shoot less photos and I would get to sleep more, but I can't help myself. So it's like – problem of being a bit of a super fan too um yeah so that's pretty much a day and, and then ews is the same except we riding our bikes to capture the photos so it's takes gets a bit more physical as well but you get to have fun on the bike so um two very different jobs but both great for what the what you get out of them well that whole uh you know if you find your passion you won't work in a day in your life but i'm not sure that's true for yeah, you that's... you're doing a lot of work a lot of stuff that you wouldn't want to do, but the passion sh- um, shines through in your work. So I think the listener at home and the fan is hopefully appreciative of that. So um, some advice to aspiring photographer, don't do it and get into video or after hearing that, or what have you got a quick bit of advice to an aspiring photographer at home? Well, you, you hit the nail on the head when you said, if, if it's uh, something you're passionate about, it, it doesn't feel like work and you'll be happy every, every, you know, whether you're getting paid or not, you're going to be happy. So I think first and foremost, you have a passion for photography and, and mountain biking. It doesn't have to be racing. Um, it's, it, it's, it, it's a lot of, you know, like most, the business side of shooting race photography has been good for me because I've gotten early and I've, I've you know, um, consistently delivered over, over 10 years. Um, but if you have the passion for the sport and the craft of photography, the it'll be you know you're gonna have to you're basically gonna lose money for the first couple of years and you're gonna be in debt um, as we all have been, and the equipment's expensive and the hours are shitty. But um, if you love it, you'll stick with it, and as soon as you stick around, stick with it, you'll gain the trust of companies and riders, and and you'll make it happen for yourself. You know if you're coming at it as a job and trying to make money, year one. Um, you, you're not going to you're not going to be there. The guys that have put in the long hard yards, those are the guys that are still there. And there's, you know, there's about, you know, there's tons of photographers at every race, but there's about ten of us that have been done done it for more than five five ten years, and um, or five years plus for some of the boys, and they're shooting all year round, shooting the World Cups and and the EWS and the Crankworks and some other events. So, you know, um. So yeah, like you said, and and it's the race season really only is like seven months long. So you have plenty of time to get the other satisfying aspects of photography, like the the photographic and the landscapes. And the, you know, when you at races, I'm shooting three thousand photos a day, maybe five thousand at a crankworks. Um, if I go shoot like a an editorial piece for a magazine, I can in a week I can shoot three hundred photos versus 3,000 in a day, every day that week. Um, you just shoot when the light is good, when you want, and you're shooting what you want, when you want, versus World Cup photography, you, you're trying to make something look good regardless of the conditions, time, venue, location, sun, wind, rain, snow, which is also what another thing what keeps it exciting. If it was easy or the same or like perfect shooting conditions, you would get jaded or you just wouldn't work hard. So the challenge which keeps us coming back is the – is the difficulty of the conditions. And, and if you can shoot 
race photography in mountain biking, I think you can pretty much do anything. Like everything else will, will feel easy in comparison. Well, that's, uh, that's really good advice there. And have you got three quick keys to a perfect action shot? I know you could speak for a whole podcast about that, but... Um... Well, I mean, now now it's the barriers to entry are real low. So um, with digital cameras and seeing what you're shooting real time and, and you can adjust by looking at the back of your screen, you still want to try get it correct in camera. Um, so to me, the three key things is... is uh, your composition, how you're framing things, is it interesting? Um, do you have any detracting things in the photo? Or is there a pleasing, does your eye move around the photo? Does it find the action? Is it drawn to the action? Is it layering? Um, and then the timing. So and timing came from skateboard photography. Like if you if you use the wrong frame or you shoot the photo at the just not the right time, if someone's doing like a 360 flip down a big set of stairs, you know, you've got plenty of time to shoot the trick, but there's only one frame, one millisecond out of that whole 13 stairs where that makes the trick look good, makes the, brings out the style of the rider, showing he's doing the trick correctly. So timing, so you've got composition, timing. Um, yeah, a, a timing is, is, is goes with the sport you're shooting. So the correct body posture. So choosing the right corner where the riders can get the right lean, the you know so basically you want to visualize yourself riding that spot that you're shooting um so if you just capture a guy just riding along you know versus shooting him lean you know you're shooting for very educated core viewers that are passionate about the sport as you and they're not going to be drawn or bother looking at the shot if you're not getting like the best lean out the shot otherwise it just could be anybody and and why look at that you know there's enough of that people people just scroll past good photos on instagram so it's got to be you got to capture everything and then i guess so that's that's goes in line with number two so then the third one is maybe set yourself apart or, or the creativity side of it um and sadly a lot of in today a lot of that is involved with how you process an image and a lot of the problem is there's a lot of built-in um, plug-in filters in a lot of the editing software which um i I don't think that's the correct way to, to begin anyway. If you use it towards later on, you can build your own presets and, and use it your style. But um, you want to try to do the work yourself correctly in camera. So get it right in camera with those other elements and those are the three things. Um, well, that's brilliant. I think I think a listener at home can definitely use that and trial and error and you've done years and years of of trial and error and I think that's key. There's no shortcut to this. Um, I do want to get into a um, untold story, if you will. Hopefully, a PC version. Um, sure, untold stories. Um, man, there, there's a like, you know, there's the lifestyle of us traveling. You know, um, Joe Bowman and I flew from Wyndham or somewhere, and we flew to Valdezia. So you, we literally had no sleep, got on an international flight land at the airport, missed the sleep, had to get in a car, drive eight hours to another venue, and we were not in the same car. But Joe essentially went around the traffic circle, exited the traffic circle, like basically jet-lagged and asleep and, you know, had an, had an accident. And luckily it was just a small accident. Everything was okay. So there's the hazards of the job, like, you know, entering a traffic circle and exiting it on the in the wrong lane because you're completely jet-lagged. Um, we've had, like, this is just like road life kind of stories. We've had our, our van break down on, on the way to Andorra on the, on the side of a freeway. It was on a toll road. And we knew it was terminal. So we basically got a, a rental car. We called in a rental car and we were busy transferring everything from the van into rental car. And I took the papers of the van and, and basically we were just going to leave it on the side of the freeway because we were done with it. Um, and as we were pulling away in the rental car, the cops rolled up and they're like, what are you doing? And we're like, oh, a tow truck's coming to take our van. And and in the end, the cops made us sit and wait for the tow truck, but we ne never called the tow truck. So we were just all sitting there like, and he's like, oh, I'll call your tow truck. And then we had to pay for a huge, uh, a huge toll road tow truck on a Sunday and get the van. Oh, so, on you know, a you van get, you, you were trying to ditch. 
Shame yeah, because at that, at, that, at that point, it was like it, it had just it had its life. Um, you know, there's a, there's a one funny story. It was actually, this is a, is, I mean, I mean, we, we did all sorts of things. Like the UCIT t- treats the media to, to some extent. Some of the venues are real bad. At Sol one year, they would shut the media center like barely an hour into it. And this is when there were no hotels that had decent working Wi-Fi. So you did rely on the media center. Like now hotels are kind of getting there. So before they kicked us out, I cracked one of the windows that they always close. Like after they prepped the center for closing, I went back and under the window. And then I fed the eth- I, I fed an Ethernet out the uh, – I saw where the router was, and then I got it to the closest window, and I put my Ethernet cable, and I just hid, hid – basically just put an Ethernet cable out the window where they couldn't see it. And then when they kicked us out, about an hour later, we climbed onto the Scott bus and then onto the roof and then onto the other roof. And then we basically just sat on the roof of the media center with the Ethernet um, cable up, and then we just worked till like past midnight with pizzas delivered on the roof of the, um, the media center. So like, just making it happen, you know. The one funny story: um, we're uh, at the Lian Airport, leaving our car in long-term parking. Um, can I had a super early flight? Um, usually, if we're flying somewhere, it'll be because we're going to US or Canada, because or Scotland, because otherwise we normally drive within Europe. Um, we had a super early flight, so rather than it's a three-hour drive to the airport, rather than do that early in the morning, we drove the night before to the airport, and our van's a camper van, so we slept in our van and then got up at six in the morning to you know to get on the flight. So we get up in the morning, and something's happened, but the the beeper wouldn't unlock the van, and you couldn't. There was no manual lock because our bed that we built. The side, the side door didn't. You couldn't open from the inside. It needed to be beat. The only manual way out was out the back door. But we, because we built the bed for our camper van, you couldn't stick your hand down. So it had a bulkhead between the camper van part and the drivers and the passenger side. But those bulkhead windows are only about ten centimeters tall. Um, and we had to remove the window so you could like kind of have more airflow. So basically, the only way to open the van was Anka had to slide over over the um, through that bulkhead window. But now we've been screaming and shaking the van to try, like, but it's, we've got no windows in the camper van, so we can't get anyone's attention either. We're just somewhere in long-term parking. So basically, Anka tries to squeeze through, but she can't fit through there because this window's too small. And it's thin steel. It's like a millimeter thick. It's 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 super sharp because, um, you know, it usually it has a window there, but we've removed the window and the rubber edge, and we have to get this flight. Um, so basically Anka strips down to her bra and panties and we're like trying to get her through there. And I shit you not, she still couldn't fit through. So I lathered her with olive oil. We took no, her bra we did off. Not. <laughs> yes, we did. But she also has got this weird angle because otherwise this thing will be like a, a cheese grater, like a knife. It'll just slice her in half, like a, like a ham slicer, you know? So so I had to like we get her feet on the bed and then her hands on the front seat, like through the window and onto the front seat. And then I literally had to like lift each boob over the the window thing to and squeeze her through. And then with the olive oil, we squeezed her through. But then she's like half naked and she has to then she could pop the front door from that. And then she had to run around the car to open the side door with like just the tile around her. And then there's like people that are like parking and walking to the airport. So that um we literally just, just, just made the flight, and Anka has to, had to do the whole flight. Like she put her clothes back on, but she was like covered in olive just oil. Just slippery the whole um, flight. Just and that that um, that's quite a like a bizarre story. And then of course, you know, we travel you with with you. Um, I don't know if you, this has popped up in your in your podcast, telling other people your experiences. But when you were um went from fully factory to semi-factory privateer with us and before you went fully factory again with mongoose and then giant um you had the the what should we call your year with us um your in-between years and uh like we didn't our team didn't have budget to fly to every race we would we would we would if we could but sometimes it just made no sense so we drove across the country twice you got out of the first way, but then driving from Montsanan to Calgary to Crankworks, um, you would have to do your whole gym workout because you had, you, I mean, you were like, a, you were getting, I mean, you you beat Menard, Norbers, and and you were getting, shoot, you were getting like some top 20s at World Cups then, 2000 and, 
Yeah, the second year, well, the second with you, I was in the top 10 at World Cup, so. Yeah, so anyway, so you had to do your full gym routine and you got three days in a car and I just remember you literally like the big five liter or what, like three ga- gallon, I don't know, Americans are gallons, like you do your handlebar and, and arm pump exercises like with a string on your handlebar rolling up this like laundry detergent and and then when we had to do the like three-day drive to Calgary from Monsanan and we had three people in the back seat of a Honda Element, which is only designed for two people, because um, you had your girlfriend fly in. I remember you, uh, we went to McDonald's that morning, and you remember while we were in McDonald's, you saw Matt Thompson. Who did you see? But basically, you basically, without Steve's knowledge, another Steve Wentz, our teammate, you basically forced him to go with somebody else so you'd have the back seat to yourself. Well, I mean, I think it was in everyone's benefit. Three people in the back seat or two. I think we asked... GT or Mongoose at the time. That was before I was on them. Maybe they were really courting me a bit, so they were <laughs> friendly. So they took <laughs> one of our team team riders. Now I appreciate that, Sven. I mean, I got stories for days. That I've... So let's uh, let's shift gears. Um, uh, it's awesome having you on here. We could talk for days, and we'll definitely have you back. Let's uh, let's build the perfect rider. I've got five categories. So you standing on the side of the course, you you know these riders. We've got fitness, mental, cornering, jumping, and, and technical ability, and you can only pick a rider once. So fitness. Mm, see, I like you want me to give a name, but I've like got a story for every category. You know, like Gwyn, maybe you know, you always had fit, strong riders, but then Gwyn maybe raised the bar on everyone, and he was so fit and so strong, which made everyone else step up. You know. Um, so fitness is twofold because you've got people like Loris and Blinky that are fit and can pedal. There's that kind of fitness. And then you have McKenna who's got power. and, and oh, um, So I'll just say you can only Gwyn pick one. because he was – well, I'll say Gwyn because he sort of set the bar of other people having to get fit. Obviously, everyone's had to step to his, his, um, his level. Sure. And then uh, mental? Mental, um, you know – Fabian for world champs had it first, and Minaj had it all these years. Well, if you say first, summer... surely Nickers Villiers had it first. I mean, he won yeah. eight as an elite I... in like ten years. Okay, <laughs> I mean... yeah, but 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 he had a he had a hell of a lot of other things going for him, not just his mental. I think he didn't rely on his mental as much as other people because he he was ahead on skill and bike, and technology okay. and setup. So his mental didn't have to be. Where Fabian like mentally got himself those world champs and and bike setup, okay. where but I like I like looking at riders that bridge the gap between genres and eras, and Manar would be that guy. Yeah, I think that's um, a fair statement. And now now that Loic can win world champs and world cups, which he could never do both, he's now like the becoming the new Manar in terms of having the whole mental package. Yeah. yeah. So like like I said, like Fab Manar now Loic, you know. Okay, cornering. See, the tracks have changed because the best corner in the world, Sam Hill, he wouldn't be able to use that to his benefit in today's World Cups. You know, like that skill is overrated on today's fast, simpler tracks. Um, so, but since we are wanting one name, it's Sam Hill. So no, we're just trying to build that perfect, perfect rider for yeah, yeah. skill set. So, yeah. jumping. I mean, there's. Oh, see, see, you're missing some categories because I like, I like, you got jumping, but you're not having like, there's jumping, but then there's scrubs, and then there's style, <laughs> and then there's, so like, because because jumping because cause jumping you you have like the guys that can race a jump like um, okay. Loris and 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 Loris and Finn and Frixalon that they can do that scrub flick like the functional one, um, but then you got guys that do like the, the lazy effortless style of jumping like. Like Brendan and and Dave McMillan, but and then they got guys jumping like gap jumps. So there's some people like Bernard, like he's the gap guy, but he's not really. There's other guys that are the gap guy, but Bernard just is more like media following, so he lets people think he's the gap guy. Um, but he does do some gaps, but he's never he's not always the first as much as he claims it. Um, we can have an argument, Bernard, but maybe like Kate Edwards, if I'm going to pick one for now, that's like a mixture of the. The scrub flick guys like Loris and Finn, and then the the steezy jump guys like Brendan and Dave McMillan. So it'll be Kate Edwards. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like if you mix all these things, this is going to be quite the rider. And then the last one, uh, his technical ability. So technical tracks, lines, rocks, that sort of stuff. Well, I, I really find that so hard because at the speeds are so high, they make it look like they take the difficulty, they make it look easy. So because of that, someone that's like somehow overpowers the technical aspects of the track, and that's through his skill, aggression, power, it, it would have to be Omri. Okay. Yeah, I mean, some some names came to mind, like, you know, Remy Tehran, you know, when it gets steep and not well, able yeah, yeah. to stay on his bike. I'm not saying you've picked your guy. I'm just saying when I think technical, it's when it gets slow and all that stuff and, like, you can just ride the most ridiculous high line or when they're... No, no, Remy, you see, Remy's in my own. Like I said, I had added a category to what you don't have. But you, you, you want, I mean, since this is racing, you're picking the things needed to win and actually make you fast. Where I, I added, like, another... I added style as another component to your list, um, and Remy was in my style one. Oh, yeah. You like Remy for style? Well, when you launch a podcast, you can you can make the rules fit. Okay, yeah, but if, <laughs> if you had to pick if you had to pick one rider that and and that matched all those things, I would say Omri. No, fair enough. I mean, that's maybe the ultimate rider now with a broad skill set, and he's not relying too much on just one. He's got it all round. Sven. And then and then I and then and then I go I go I go since like I like to do things my way, um, and don't <laughs> don't do you now? don't edit this out. Um, even though you got your little um, thing on 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 fitness, um, and you needed strength as well because fitness and strength is two different things. Because then you got people like G and, um, but anyway, that 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 aside, uh, like racing is 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 such a big thing, but like the current climate of what people are into and what's influencing people, there's such a strong vibe and, and it's like the vibe that like little posses or groups or gangs or like, like, you know, you have the Vanzacs and the 50 to one and, and then the French Lachille zone crew. Like um, I think that's like another often ignored upon thing. It's, and it does go into Daniel. It does cross over into Daniel and Daniel racing, but it's like, a major part of of downhill riding, not necessarily racing, and, and yeah, so like build your perfect posse would would be a, another category, Andrew, and it would be Vanzac's fifty to one and the Chill Zone all mixed in one. Okay, well, I mean, we'll we'll agree <laughs> to disagree there, but I know your journalist side is coming out, and and that's what I appreciate. No, we can adapt these things. Fitness and strength for me is all in one. I see what you mean by style. We can add that, but I also don't want to have a four hour podcast, so. Just keeping yeah. it keeping it concise, but you have oh, there's more there's yeah there's more to, there's more to mountain biking than downhill racing I guess is what I'm getting at as well. Absolutely no no you've you've really uh, I think you've educated the listener I've had some good time and I think some listener questions are key but we've answered so many but this is a perfect oh, give way me a, give to... me a li- give me a listen give me a listener question I will do or you got some fans out there some guys replied and they don't even know what this is for yet so. A listener question, which I think is a perfect way to end this, is your ultimate money shot photo. Who, what, and where? And that's from uh, Hooked Podcast. Oh, you see, for maybe for other photographers, this is an easy question, but I've literally cannot choose. And well, I you've and got it's, a gun to your head, not, virtual gun. Um, you've got to answer my question. Like, well, I literally do because I have a deadline that was due for today for an Aussie magazine, and like you said, pick your three favorite photos over like the last ten years, and I like don't even know where to begin. Yeah, that sounds uh, horrible and, to try pick that out. Like, like I, um, see, see, in 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 photography, and 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 that keeps me going and keeps me hungry is like I want the next photo to be my best photo, and the next trip to deliver to get the best photos I, I don't like to rest on my laurels or like i've done something good therefore i am i i i i wonder about tomorrow and, and i'm striving for making my best work tomorrow but like to pick one like i don't know let's just pick one for know. fun and we can maybe you can put it up on your instagram when we launch this your episode uh i got a photo of this is 2003, so I was very much still racing and not really 
shooting photos, but I got a photo of Cedric Garcia on slide film in Lugano four cross 2003. Um, and he was crashing and he crashed near me, but I chose this corner to stand in basically like I use off camera flash with a fisheye, which means I had to be within five feet of the action. Like, and you would never in a million years try to shoot a final run like that, especially at four cross at night because with a fisheye, because you can only literally the action has to be right there and I'm can't be on the track, but you almost have to be, but he crashed literally under my feet into me almost. And it was like a one in a million chance. And then when I got that film developed, like I sent a bunch of photos to the lab, a bunch of rolls of film and they circled this one and these guys developed all the best surfers and mountain bikers, photography, uh, no, sorry, moto and surfing and snowboarding. Um, and they'd circled us and, and these guys were mountain bikers and they were like, whoa, this is cool. Like what you did is like, they could sense that I'd captured something special. And that's probably the time when I thought, oh, well, if these guys thought that was special and it stopped them who aren't mountain bikers, then maybe I should actually, so that photo in 2003 is maybe what set me on the path of thinking that maybe I should take the photography side of mountain biking more seriously. Yeah. Well, that's a brilliant answer, and, and I hope you can dig that pick up. Now, I've had an absolute blast here, and I know we'll uh, I'll be calling upon you when the racing starts again. We can get some awesome inside info, some uh, on the side of the track nuggets. So thanks a ton for your time. Thank you, Andrew. And where can uh, the listener see you? I know you're on Instagram and at Sven Martin Photo, correct? Yeah, at Sven Martin Photo. Um, and... Yeah, I think that that leads you to other other things and other places, and or you see other people using my photos. So you, you it it should you know if you follow Daniel Mountain Biking, you'll see a couple of my photos about. And then uh, we have um, slideshows when the races are back up and happening on on daily on Vital MTB during World Cup and EWS events. Well, thanks again. That was awesome, and stay well. All right. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So I'm going to stop this one. All right, Andrew. Andrew. No, no, no. I'm just going to. Yet? I'm going to stop the recording. Um, don't stop it. <laughs> if I don't give a shout out to Mad Dog Boris, he'll divorce me. So Boris, thank you, bro, and uh, keep that one in, Andreas. Otherwise, it's going to be a tough year ahead. Always a great time catching up with Sven. Thanks so much to him for making the time. Man, we go way back. We've got so many stories together, and I know he's got a lot of stories. You can see how passionate he is about the sport. So I'm grateful to him for everything he does for the world of mountain biking. Guys, and to you, thanks so much for all the reviews. I read them all. I get those direct messages. Cheers. And you know what? Do me a favor. If you enjoyed this episode, why don't you just share it with a friend? Maybe he doesn't know about the podcast and he can gain some value from it. So cheers for that. And I'd also be keen to hear like what you know, what was your favorite episode of 2020? I've got too many to name. I really enjoyed chatting to everyone. I know guys really liked the Martin Soderstrom episode with how honest he was and raw he was. Um, Grand Lottering is someone that maybe you guys might call, you know, friends and fans don't really know about, but that was super inspirational as well. So guys, until the next one, you know what to do. Stay well. Give me some feedback if you want to. Send me a message. I'd like to hear from you. Cheers.